From pop culture to politics, this is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day as things heat up in the Middle East. The uh, Israeli Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, has said that Israel is now fighting a battle for its survival on seven fronts. But they are doing so with great confidence. And there's a piece that's stunning, which uh, shows that uh, in Israel, the national unity has become so powerful, so uh, resurgent, that even uh, the overwhelming majority of Israeli Arabs say they identify primarily as Israelis, not as Palestinians, not as Arabs, but as part of the nation of Israel. We will get to that story. Uh, we will also be speaking about the meaning for the United States of everything that is going on in the Middle East, the uh, attacks on our servicemen, some of whom were critically injured, this by Houthi rebels uh, who are supported by Iran. Uh, we'll be talking about this with Admiral uh, Sturides, uh, who is uh, one of the former chief of naval operations who has had a great deal to say about the uh, danger to the United States and to our uh, position. There's also a, a, a commentary in the Wall Street Journal by Seth Cropsey, who is a, a former Defense Department official. He is the uh, uh, president uh, of the Yorktown Institute, served as a naval officer. He says America needs a Middle East strategy. And what is it uh, that we have not put together as a Middle East strategy? The same sort of thing that uh, has embarrassed uh, the governor of Colorado. This has nothing to do with the lawsuit in Colorado that resulted in Trump at least temporarily losing that state uh, in terms of his name on the ballot. Uh, there are two other states today, uh, Minnesota and Michigan, both of which are much more in play in uh, the presidential election because they're both are arguably swing states. Well, Minnesota not so much, but Michigan certainly is. Uh, they have uh, uh, ruled out lawsuits that would take Trump's name away from the ballot, so we will be bringing you up to date on all of that. There's also more talk of... Republican competitors to Donald Trump, basically, if your name isn't Nikki Haley, uh, you're right now cutting back because it looks like you're not going to win. The One of the latest stories like that involves Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who has stopped uh, spending money on any advertisements in the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary. And why not? Well, he's a billionaire. He's been spending his own money. And uh, that money is apparently not going anywhere. And there was also a, a, a story about one of the most touching, uh, I think sensitive, and uh, just lyrical Christmas greetings in the history of uh, the United States. There was a uh, there were Christmas greetings uh, from uh, Ocasio 
Cortez, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the leader of the squad, uh, where she actually <laughs> uh, uh, took um, access of a, a very old-fashioned kind of anti-Semitism, uh, wishing people Christmas greetings at the same time that they were insisting that the uh, Jews uh, were oppressive uh, because um, uh, Jesus was a Palestinian. Uh, we will get to that issue as well. There's also this Christmas greeting from President Trump. And um, President Trump said um, in his Christmas greeting, and no, this is not a parody, it is not a joke, it is real. It has actually provoked a little bit of controversy. Uh, President Trump said, um, Merry Christmas to all, including deranged special counsel Jack Smith, uh, who is the only hope for Joe Biden to win this election. Included also are world leaders, both good and bad, but none of which are as evil and sick as the thugs, all in caps, we have inside our country, who, with their open borders, inflation, Afghanistan surrender, green new scam, high taxes, no energy independence, woke military, Russia-Ukraine, Israel-Iran, all-electric car lunacy, and so much more are looking to destroy our once great USA. May they rot in hell. Again, Merry Christmas. That's the uh, president's message. Um, Debbie Dingell, who is a member of Congress from the state of Michigan, uh, came out and said this was the most pathetic Christmas greeting she had, she had ever heard. What about the Dingell Norwood bill? <laughs> right. Well, that Dingell Norwood bill was based on her late husband. Do you remember there was uh, at a time that that uh, John Dingell, who whose father had been a congressman from Michigan, he had served longer in Congress than any other individual has served. I mean, he was basically there since the Pleistocene era or maybe the Jurassic era. He had been there for a very long time since the earth cooled. And when John Dingell died and his uh, wife, who was significantly younger than Congressman Dingell, uh, took over the seat, uh, she was speaking at his funeral and uh, said something disrespectful Trump thought about Trump. And Trump said, um, I, I can't imagine how uh, your husband, John Dingell, would be looking down on you or considering it's John Dingell, he's probably looking up at us. Uh, meaning that he was in hell too. And uh, she, of course, I'm sure remembered <laughs> that interchange. Uh, but the idea that Merry Christmas to all at the beginning and the end and may they rot in hell again Merry Christmas that is Trump's message uh, meanwhile there is a survey of uh, American journalists which uh, tells an old old story but tells it with renewed force the uh, story well media tilt 
to the left. Uh, why do they tilt to the left? One of the reasons, and I think that you you can't get away from this, is that if you are on the left, you want radical change. You want things to be shaken up because the world is unjust, it's unfair. So you're going to create a new reality and turn things upside down. And uh, that kind of attitude toward the world goes along very naturally with the uh, notion that uh, uh, you're going to be carrying the news because we don't have a news business in America. We have a bad news business. Uh, people who are looking for big stories are looking for horrifying stories, usually stories that get your attention. And they tend to be a very negative view of the wider world. So what percentage of American journalists, according to a new sto study from Syracuse University, are actually openly identified as Republicans? Uh, we will get to that story and to much more. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, is, uh, according to another world leader, no different from Hitler. No, it's not uh, Iran that's saying that, and it's not uh, Gaza, it's not even Hezbollah. Who is it? We will get to that as well, and much, much more. Coming up on a busy day here on The Michael Medved Show, 1-800-955-1776, if you want to talk to us. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, it is a pleasure to welcome to this program, and an honor, in fact, to welcome Admiral James Stavridis, who is a four-star admiral in the United States Navy, retired. He is the vice chair for global affairs at the Carlisle Group and a uh, chair of the board of trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Admiral Stavridis is a native of South uh, Florida, and uh, is also the, not only a, an honors graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy at An Annapolis, but uh, he, during his 35 years in the Navy, he um, managed to get a Ph.D. and uh, was actually head of the Foreign Fletcher School at Tufts, uh, winning the uh, outstanding prize for the st outstanding student in his class. I could go on. But I'd much rather give uh, Admiral Stavridis the right to respond. Right now, uh, Israel is saying that it is fighting a war on seven fronts or is in the midst about to be fighting a war on seven fronts. Uh, do, you, uh, do you believe that's accurate? And if so, does Israel have a chance to prevail? Uh, first, Israel will prevail, and I'm quite convinced the United States will stand with Israel. I think it's uh, premature to say that they are, quote, fighting, end quote, a war on seven fronts. But there are certainly seven very potential war fronts, uh, one very active one in Gaza, one to the north of Israel from Hezbollah, 
um, a couple off to the east uh, from Syria uh, and as far away as Iraq. Those are also Iranian proxies. Every organization I've listed thus far is. Uh, and then down to the south, the Houthi rebels are moving against maritime assets and particularly trying to find Israelis uh, to go after. Uh, and then there's Iran itself. So if you put it all together, there are certainly seven individual vectors or lines of threat, Michael. Um, they have not as yet burst into a regional war. Let's hope they do not. At the moment, Israel is particularly focused on Gaza and to the north, deterring Hezbollah, which has the greatest military threat to the state of Israel. Uh, right now, uh, the uh, latest news shows that the U.S. has shot down 12 suicide drones, our Navy, uh, three anti-ship missiles, two land attack missiles fired by the Houthis. Is uh, this the beginning of uh, a international uh, confrontation because the U.S. has put together a number of our allies with naval reinforcements? Is this going to be a naval war in the Red Sea? Well, let's start with the obvious, which is let's hope not, because the Red Sea, which is about the size of your native state, California, so a very big body of water, and of course at the very north of it is the Suez Canal. You may recall uh, two to three years ago, a single tanker got wedged sideways in the Suez Canal. That effectively closed the canal for several days. The repercussions through the global supply chains were immediate. If the Red Sea were to actually close down, that's 20% of the world's shipping. So it's a serious global economic threat. So first point to be made is um, I don't think it's going to be hard to sign up uh, plenty of allies to come and help us patrol uh, both the Red Sea, Michael, and then as you come out of the Red Sea into the Indian Ocean, you've got to kind of cover that North Arabian Sea as well. You're going to need to do that effectively. A couple of dozen warships, a lot of overhead sensors, satellites. Um, and I'll close with this. That's the defensive side of the equation. Frankly, it's becoming increasingly obvious, given the numbers you just read out, that we are going to have to go offensive here and go after these uh, Houthi rebel sites ashore in and around Yemen and at the far end of the spectrum if that doesn't get Tehran's attention I think we're going to have to go after some Iranian maritime assets until the Iranians wake up and realize they can't just continue attacking our ships at sea you put out an, a novel in addition to all of your other astonishing array of accomplishments uh, you're a distinguished novelist and I think we spoke about it before which was, mm. this was in 2021, uh, you had a novel called 2034, a novel of the next world war. Uh, have you revised your thinking? Do you think if we have a next <laughs> world war, it will come sooner than 2034? I don't, and I'll tell you why. Um, of course, the premise of the book is a war between the U.S. and China, kind of centered in the South China Sea and uh, even though China is building a massive fleet, even though they're acting very aggressively, they're not ready yet uh, to line up all that they need to take on the U.S. Pacific fleet, 
uh, all of our allies. You know, if we ended up in a war with China, um, it wouldn't be just the U.S. and China. We have treaty allies who are sworn to come and be part of a military campaign like that. That's Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand. So that's a lot of firepower when you kind of put it all together. Point being, Michael, that China, in my estimation, will not be ready to take on the U.S. in a very mature way for about 10 years. So I think we have a bit of a grace period here where we can strengthen our military to preserve deterrence and also try and use diplomacy, economics, cultural exchanges, all the other means we have to to take tension out of the relationship. Final thought, a month ago, we had a pretty good summit, you probably recall, between President Xi of China and President Biden in San Francisco. Didn't solve all the problems, didn't completely make the relationship go Pacific, not to make a pun, but it it indeed took some of the tension out of the relationship. Bottom line, I think we're still a decade away from a serious uh, possibility of a war with China. Let's hope so. Oh, th- thank God for that, if, if that is the yeah. case. Uh, reading some of the material about you, of course, there's a lot of attention to the possibility of your running as a vice presidential candidate back in 2016, uh, along with Hillary Clinton. Do you have uh, any lingering interest in American politics? (laughs) I always say my name is uh, too long to fit on a bumper sticker. Stavridis goes on and on. Uh, But I, I, I I would never avoid the opportunity to serve the nation. That's a longer conversation. Let's have it in a couple more months. I would look forward to it. And I also was thrilled to see that your nickname, apparently the Naval Academy, was Zorba, uh, as in the Greek. Uh, James Stavridis, a real asset to the United States, four-star admiral, a prolific author, and uh general public servant. We will be right back on American journalism and why and how it tilts coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show... The uh, a new study from Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communications found that the percentage of American journalists, these are people who are working in our various media, on television, uh, newspapers, yes, radio, everything else, they uh, did an online survey with 1,600 U.S. journalists, and they concluded the survey in early uh, 2022. It's the latest in a series of studies dating back to 1971 that take the uh, temperature of people in media and in journalism uh, to determine their partisan lean, their job satisfaction, and professional attitudes. And it turns out that in this most recent version of the survey, the percentage of Republicans and all of American journalism, 3.4%. That uh, seems to deserve 
protection under the Endangered Species Act. I'm 3.4 percent, the lowest it's ever been. Uh, When the first version of the study came out over 50 years ago, 35 percent of respondents said they were Democrats and 25 percent of respondents said they were Republicans. And 32.5% said they were independents. The uh, percentage that call themselves Democrats or independents have bounced around over the years, but the uh, proportion of Democrats reached a high of uh, 44.1% back in 1992. That was the year of the election between Bill Clinton and George Herbert Walker Bush, of course. The last iteration of the study before this most recent one, pegged the proportion of Republican journalists in America at 7.1%. So the number of journalists who identify as Republican has been cut in half. Now, what part of this is, it doesn't even necessarily reflect how people vote, but it does reflect the fact that in this world of journalism where people know each other and know one from another... There might be a little bit of uh, embarrassment when uh, you are outnumbered by independents and uh, Democrats. And by the way, I think the number for Democrats is probably much higher than this survey would suggest because uh, uh, people over-answered the response that we're independent. Uh, there's a sense that people have that, well, when you're independent, that means you're going to be impartial. I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, in 2022, just 3.4% of journalists were Republicans. That figure was 18% in 2002 and 25.7% in 1971. So even though you might say, well, the Republican Party is still strong, they control the House, Uh, They have a good chance of winning back the presidency this time, particularly if uh, they have someone who is simply a Republican alternative to Biden, but not necessarily someone named Donald Trump with all of what that employs. Uh, But uh, this has not changed or increased any Republican presence among journalists. Uh, According to... A Gallup poll from November, uh, newsrooms are totally out of step with the general public. Independents do make up the largest proportion of the population at 40%. This is of everybody. But the same proportion of Americans, 29%, say they're Republicans and say they're Democrats. Another Gallup poll from this fall found that while 58% of Democrats and 29% of independents have a great deal or a fair amount of confidence in the media, just 11% of Republicans, this is in the country at large, feel the same way and even say they have a fair amount of uh, confidence in the media. Uh, But uh, that doesn't stop the media from giving stories and some details about developments that clearly do fall out in a pro-Republican direction. And that was the case, at least a pro-Trump direction, with a a report this morning on a new decision by the Michigan Supreme Court. 
Uh, listen, this is the way it was covered on CNN. It's clip two. A state Supreme Court in Michigan has just rejected an effort to remove Donald Trump from that state's primary ballot. This ruling comes eight days after Colorado's Supreme Court ruled that Trump should be removed from the ballot. Well, every state is following their own rules and their own processes for how to have candidates on the ballots. And this is why we're seeing something so different in Michigan today. The highest court in Miss Michigan, seven justices determining they're not going to get involved. The lower courts in Michigan said that they acknowledged that there were challenges to Trump being on the primary ballot there. And the lower court said, we also are not getting involved. This is not something for us to determine. And they weren't weighing in on the general election either at that time. And so now this case goes to the Michigan Supreme Court. They looked at it and they said, yeah, we're not going to do anything here either. But one of the justices in Michigan did write uh, today in this ruling that Michigan is very different from Colorado. The laws are different around who qualifies for their primary ballots there. And that is one of the reasons why that state is ending up with a different situation about determining whether Donald Trump can be on the ballot. Okay, and basically what they're saying is, uh, number one, it's because the state constitution uh, does not give the state or the federal government the power to control who's running in a primary. A primary is a, a statewide matter, so the Republicans can run anyone they want. Uh, it's a question about whether that Republican, if he wins, for instance, the presidential nomination – that uh, he would then still be deemed to be eligible to be on the general election ballot. In other words, the primary is being treated very differently, and, and they indicated in this judgment from the uh, Supreme Court of Michigan, which is so much more important than Colorado, not because it's that much bigger a state, though it does have more electoral votes. Colorado has 10 electoral votes. Michigan has 16. And Michigan is the most crucial of swing states. And the first time when President Trump won the election, he won Michigan very narrowly. Joe, Joe Biden won by a little bit more. He won by well, actually about 10 times as much. He won by 100,000 uh, votes last time. But uh, Michigan is a crucial state for both of these candidates to win. So the idea that, okay, they're going to go ahead and have a Michigan primary, it now looks like Trump is a very likely winner in the primary, but then they can challenge again when, if he is the winner of the primary, uh, they want to put him on the Republican, on the general election ballot. However, just as a legal observer, and not someone who has dug deep into the constitutional questions here. That decision in Colorado that got so much attention, that was a 102-page decision. And it was well-reasoned, it was complicated, but the, uh, the idea that this is all going to be decided quickly or that the Supreme Court is even going to take it up quickly, uh, we will see. But we may have a pattern where Trump is permitted on some state ballots and not on others. But at some point, that uh, does mean that uh, the Supreme Court will almost surely have to get involved. There is a holiday mystery. The question is, there's a Christmas greeting 
Christmas photo taken from Mar-a-Lago of the Trump family. But there's one member of that family, Melania Trump, who's missing. Where'd she go? Uh, we'll let you know the truth on that issue. Coming up on the Michael Medved Show. There's a uh, number of captions that have been provided for the uh, Trump family Christmas photo that they sent out from Mar-a-Lago. And look, there's everyone looks elegant, well-dressed, happy. Uh, that's what they seriously do. They look very elegant, the Trumps. But there are actually two Trumps who you don't see in the photo. And you kind of wonder, why not? And one of the uh, the headlines for one of the magazines that this appeared in, it uh, says, Where's Melania? Former First Lady missing from Trump family Christmas photo taken at Mar-a-Lago. Well, there's somebody else who is missing, too, which is the fiancé of uh, Donald Trump Jr., uh, who is Kimberly Guilfoyle, who also used to be married to Gavin Newsom. Governor of California, don't ask. Don't ask. I mean, this gets pretty complicated and a little bit like Dallas or another TV soap opera. But in any event, uh, Kimberly Gil- Guilfoyle is missing because she took the photo. Okay, that's fair enough. And uh, Melania was missing because uh, her, her parents are alive and she was uh, called in to... Uh, spend some of the holiday season with her ailing mother, which seems to me perfectly admirable and uh, and, and normal. Uh, but uh, that's, that's the solution to uh, one of the, not one of the great mysteries of our time. But there was also, uh, last night, a, uh, a message by President Trump on video uh, that urged his supporters to turn out for the 2024 Republican Iowa caucus. Why? Because it's only 20 days away. I mean, it's really coming up quickly. And uh, President Trump, of course, not only talked about why his supporters should come out, but talked about his belief that... um, the only way he would lose in Iowa would be if the um, his opponents cheated again. Uh, this is uh, former President Trump. Listen. Out for caucuses. Teach them how to caucus. Take them in your car on caucus night. If you have to uh, do whatever is necessary, we got to get them in. We got to make America great again. So do whatever it takes. If you do, we will win and win big. And that's what you have to do. You know, the other side does cheat, and we're not going to let that happen. We cannot let that happen. But that's what we need from you. Get in your car, get a lot of people, and get down and caucus. 
give a great speech for me. I hope you will, and I know you will have such confidence in you as you had in me and you have in me. Okay. This is a great confidence you have in me. And when he says his opponents, which of his opponents does he think is, are going to cheat in Iowa? Last time, he he lost to Ted Cruz. It was a close race. And it was actually close for the top three finishers. They were all within, like, one percentage of one another. And uh, the third-place finisher was Marco Rubio. And the, the, he said at the time that uh, he had not actually lost the Iowa caucuses and that uh, he was a victim of cheating and election rigging. And then it didn't matter because he went on to win the New Hampshire primary and then swept most of the other primaries that were out there. Uh, Speaking of uh, sweeping uh, statements, uh, President Trump had his uh, holiday message suggesting Merry Christmas to all and may my opponents rot in hell uh, because he believes that his opponents and anyone who would oppose him is uh, actually meaning to destroy our once great country, as he puts it. Uh, Chris Christie had his own holiday message, and he sent it out from the campaign trail, where currently he's running third in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, He's not competing in Iowa. Uh, This is Chris Christie. Country fully again until we love each other again until we have love in our hearts for every American, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, whether they're independent, whether they're black or white or brown, whether they're rich or poor, if we don't do that, we will never be able to truly love this country because no leader who says they love America can truly love them if they tell you to hate other Americans. If they tell you they're going to kick people out of this country who they call fascists, who say they're going to use the power of the office of the presidency to punish their enemies. Well, again, he is talking about uh, President Trump, obviously, but that's what Chris Christie does. He's uh, also talking about the uh, proclamation that President Trump made when he announced his candidacy this time, uh, where he said that uh, last time when he won in 2016, he said, I will be your voice. Uh, This time he said to the Americans who he felt were being oppressed and repressed uh, that I will be your voice. I will be your justice, and I will be your retribution. And uh, he's never fully described what retribution looks like or what it means. Uh, There's there's also this when it comes to violations. A uh, headline from the Times of Israel, and uh, the headline says, Ocasio-Cortez draws fire for Christmas message comparing Jesus to Gazans. Really? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
has been blasted by critics for a Christmas message comparing Jesus to the Palestinians, with at least one of those critics saying it invoked the historic charge that the Jews killed Jesus. Drawing parallels between Jesus' persecutors and present-day Israel, Ocasio-Cortez wrote in an Instagram post on Sunday that Jesus was born in modern-day Palestine under a government carrying out a massacre of innocents. According to the New Testament, Jesus was actually a Jew who lived within the modern borders of Israel and was killed by the Roman forces uh, ruling the territory at the time. He was part of a targeted population being indiscriminately killed to protect an unjust leader's power, or Ocasio-Cortez wrote. Thousands of years later, right-wing forces are violently occupying Bethlehem as similar stories unfold for today's Palestinians. The New York lawmaker, member of the so-called squad of outspoken progressives in Congress, referred to Jesus' family as Jewish Palestinians. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez's post made no mention of Hamas, Israeli hostages in Gaza, or the October 7th atrocities that claimed the lives of 1,200 people in Israel, mostly civilians, and set off the war with the Hamas terrorist group. In any event, there's a terrific piece in response to this that ran in the Jerusalem Post, and it's a piece by a, a Christian who has devoted his life to fostering a deeper understanding uh, in the Christian community of what it means to be Jewish. His, his name, uh, who wrote this piece for the Jerusalem Post, is um, the name of his organization, is uh, uh, basically a, a very important undertaking uh, which is uh, taking American Christians to deepen their Christian faith by having them visit and understand Israel. And he writes, uh, On this Christmas Day, Christian hearts worldwide are torn over the violence in Israel on the Gaza Strip. Unfortunately, some seek to take advantage of this genuine concern by politicizing the holiday and championing the phrase, Jesus was a Palestinian. This historically inaccurate sentiment reveals a transparent effort to reduce both the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the players involved to mere caricatures, all the while weaponizing Christian identity to support one side of the conflict. We'll get to more on that. Uh, we will also be covering the idea of Israel rethinking its identity, a murder boom in a major American city, and Netanyahu compared to Hitler, 